Uh, you don't have to worry about missing out on our uh, teaching, though, next week. I'll be preaching uh, next Sunday. So, uh, yeah, bring a change of clothes because you're all going to want to get baptized. Uh, it's going to be good. Um, so I don't know why you think that's funny. Uh, <laughs> all right. Um, so I'm just I'm covering the second half of uh, chapter 15. I'm not going to do my typical review, just a very brief kind of popping back to 12 so we have some context uh, chapter 12, uh, Paul transitions to, to calling them to live a life, a new life, uh, a life in the reality that they, they have been made new create creatures in Christ. So he calls them to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. So they have this kind of kingdom of priests um, identity. They are those who um, offer proper sacrifices to God, but the proper sacrifices are not uh, animal sacrifices. It is their own lives as they are living uh, like Christ, as they are taking on that mission uh, of restoration and reconciliation. Josh, this yeah. morning in uh, the other Josh's sermon in Revelation, Revelation 1 6 uses that exact language about the kingdom of priests, yeah. which then also reconciles to uh, Exodus 19, which is the same language. So yeah. This idea of offering sacrifices yeah that's that's something that we often don't pick up that runs throughout scripture even maybe the 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 idea with adam uh, and eve and the image of god uh, there might be this kind of temple um, symbolism there as well as there to care for creation and steward it Uh, and so we we've always been the kind of representatives or those who are uh, doing god's work uh, from the beginning Um, and uh, we look forward to that even when christ returns you have this language of ruling beside him Uh, so the mission from the beginning, even to new creation, is this uh, caring for and participating with God in his work. Um, so uh, as we think about what that looks like, we see that that has uh, ramifications for how they live in community. He talks about giftedness in chapter 12, um, sincere love. Uh, he looks in some ways about how then you live within the larger world, of uh, submitting appropriately to uh, governing bodies. He sums some of this up in chapter 13. Uh, verses 8, excuse me, uh, verses 9 and 10. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Uh, So this is kind of that that new life. And then if we slow down a little in the uh, immediately preceding and connected passage in chapter 14, Uh, It'll help us as we get to 15. So um, for those of you who missed, or to give a little review on what uh, Hilton covered, in chapter 14 we looked at the the issue that gets referred to as the strong and the weak. And the strong and the weak is a way of talking about uh, not those who have greater faith and those who have less faith. It's rather they are strong in recognizing the freedom they have in Christ, and others are weak in an understanding of the freedom in Christ. Um, Those strong and the freedom of Christ recognize they don't have to keep all the, uh, the holidays, uh, the holy days, and the uh, dietary restrictions of the Jews. Those who are weak in the freedom of Christ still think maybe those are things that they should do. Um, and into that conversation, Paul rightly says, uh, I think in verse 3, um, the one who eats everything, in other words, those who are strong in regards to freedom, must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything, in other words, though his, the one who is weak in regards to the freedom, must not judge the one who does. 
Um, and this continues to speak to us today, I think. It goes both ways. Uh, I think sometimes at a more, quote unquote, progressive church like Otter Creek, um, that we might have the tendency to treat with contempt those who are not at our same spot. And those of you who are at Otter Creek and think we're actually not progressive um, might, uh, might struggle with that as well in our own church body. So, so we have to um, strive to operate out of love and generosity um, in these matters. Uh, verse 5, each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. We are reminded here of the sense of um, it's not just about right actions, but there is a, a, about right motives as well. That we always see that, see that, that Jesus and those who uh, are teaching his word uh, care about what's going on in the heart. Um, so this is why it matters what you're convinced about, because you want to be operating out of sincerity. Um, as we move on in verse 14, uh, you have this theme, like in verse 7, none of us lives for ourselves alone. Verse 8, we live for the Lord. This new identity as new creatures in Christ is not those who um, we just do what we want and then add a little Jesus on the side when we have time for it, but, but our whole lives have shifted um, into uh, living as, um, as offerings for Christ. Uh, our lives are about this thing. We have one master. We have one goal. Um, C.S. Lewis uh, talks about that, that we, what often we want to be like is good taxpayers, those who, who give whatever they need to to the government and then have whatever they have left is just for them to deal with. Instead, we're not those who give to God this portion or whatever that he demands of us, and then we do what we want with the rest of ourselves. But our, our whole lives are him. Our whole lives are oriented around uh, Jesus as our master. We get some, um, some hard language for us to hear sometimes at the end of verse 10. And verse 12, we will stand before God's judgment seat. Verse 12, each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Uh, there is no way around, um, as we read Romans closely, this sense of what we do matters. This is not earning our salvation at all. Don't mishear that. Uh, what Christ has done has, has uh, allowed us to be forgiven, to be reconciled with God. But there is nonetheless a sense of, you have been forgiven, you have been reconciled, and you are expected to live accordingly. Not because you're earning it, but because you're living within it. Um, so, again, it's an important thing where there's not, a, uh, there's not an allowance for, Christ did it all, I'm going to do whatever I want, and just uh, go on sinning so that grace may abound. Uh, absolutely not. Josh, Jeff Walling said one time that really helped me understand that, following Jesus isn't to get salvation, following Jesus is salvation. Yeah. So it's, it's not a workspace thing. It's that God created us for this purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, and we seem to get that confused. Yeah. Yeah, so um, uh, I talk some about when actually I teach Galatians, when, when you get the language of freedom, there's a freedom from and a freedom from sin and a freedom to live lives of love. So it's, it's capturing that same kind of idea. We need, we need to be... Um, Enabled and empowered to be who we were created to be. So, uh, yes? That, that verse 12, mm-hmm. so is that saying um, we're going to give an account of everything? We're going to give an account of our sins? We're going to give an account of our works? What is it saying? I don't know. <laughs> For each of us, concerning himself, as all it says, concerning himself, peri a uh, we'll give an account to God. 
So um, it's yeah, it's enough to kind of give you a kick in the pants, right? It's enough to at least say there's no place for complacency. Uh, yeah, George, do you have any? Yeah, it's, you're, you're judged on the basis of the life you live. Even when we're saved and we're covered in the blood of Christ. But you have an advocate, mm -hmm. Jesus Christ, who will stand there and say, the Father, I gave myself for you. And so there's a, it's, it's hard to... It I mean, is. You don't want to sit around and live in fear all your life. Right. But it's a, it's a humbling, awesome thought to stand mm -hmm. before God and have to give him but the hopeful part is you have someone there to plead your case for you. Mm -hmm. But if my sins are as far as the east is to the west, then... Yeah, so what, what Scripture seems to do is not resolve the tension. There are some traditions who are all the way over here. It's all grace. All sin is removed. It doesn't matter. And there are some who are over here, and they have their own Bible verses as well, who can say, you stand before the judgment seat of God. Um, he'll... It, as it says here, you'll give an account of yourself to God, or back in Romans 2. So we can each kind of pull out texts that say it doesn't matter, fully forgiven, or it absolutely matters, but Scripture doesn't fully parse that or fully um, deal with that tension. Instead, we're living somewhere in this, yes, forgiven, yes, receive grace, yes, it matters what you do, um, and how to, how to fix that. If I find out, I would happily let you know, yeah? <laughs> Yeah, the comparison thing can really get in our way here. So that's helpful. Um, it also reminds me of, uh, as you judge, so you'll be judged uh, kind of thing. Yeah? That's what I was going to say. 13, it says, therefore. Mm -hmm. so it's it's with, with yeah, and, and picking up on all this, why is because it's not about you, this person living up to your expectations. It's all of you. Are, are under Master Christ who's going to judge you. So it's not as though you're a judge and Jesus is judge and this person's down here. You have one judge and uh, you're all under that judge. Yeah? Yeah, um, so in a little bit, in verse, um, in chapter 15, um, 15, something I was going to talk about, but I'll read it and then go ahead and talk about it now. I have written you quite boldly on some points to remind you of them again because of the grace given me, or back in verse 14 even, I should have backed up there. I myself am convinced, my brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with knowledge and competent to instruct one another. Paul seems to expect, even though the church has sometimes messed this up, that they at least know what's essential. 
right? You know you've got to believe and practice this. Part of being a Christian is you hold on to these beliefs and you've got to live at least this way. And if you know what that is, then you know where you can say, okay, we can agree to disagree on these matters. But often uh, what's happened is we don't know the difference between essentials and places where we can disagree. And so we make them all essentials and think, well, if you're not living up to what I think is right on you know, not only A, B, and C, but A through Z, then somehow we can't be in fellowship or somehow I have a place to judge you on that. So my response would be what we first need to do is know scripture well enough and know uh, kind of basic classical tradition. I'm talking about capital T tradition, like Apostles' Creed, stuff that Christians have always believed. Know that stuff well enough so we can say, okay, here is where we are finding our core. This is kind of central. Uh, but often we can't make those judgments because we don't have a, a, a central place to make them out of. Saw a hand up here? Yeah. Can you speak up? I got this air blowing right in my ear. Uh huh. So, one is trying to there. Absolutely, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Good for you. Yeah. Yeah, and and here maybe it'll be. I don't want to step on George's toes, and he might disagree with me in a couple weeks, but. In Galatians, it seems like those disagreements had risen to the level of who's in and who's out. In Romans, it's like he's saying, you can recognize these aren't at that level. These are, these are agree to disagree kind of matters. But even in their agree to disagree, they're starting to be like, uh, we can agree to disagree, but I'm still right and superior. Uh, and so he's, he's breaking it down there. And he's going to do something much more extreme in Galatians because it's written, risen to an inappropriate level. Yes? Gosh, is that judgment... Because obviously we shouldn't, or obviously we should be able to say, hey, what you're doing is wrong. Mm -hmm. And it seems like some people want to look at the judge not lest you be judged and say, don't tell anybody that what they're Mm -hmm. doing is wrong. But it seems like it's more condemnation rather than just judgment correction. Because I want someone, if I'm Mm -hmm. doing something that is destructive to myself, I want someone to judge my actions. And then that plays itself out further and then how... We view God judge. We view God's judgment as condemnation, where God's judgment, or we we give an account at the end, may be a corrective as well. And where it's like, I did this, and he's like, well, you probably should have done mm-hmm. this. Um, that seems more helpful than to me to get that sort of judgment from God, as well as that sort of judgment from others, and helping me become the person that God intended me to be. So there's, um, I would say, mostly yes. Am I agree, and we could maybe agree to disagree on that as well. Um, uh, certainly, there's a sense in which the, the condemnatory attitude needs to be done away with. Um, there's also a sense in which 
when we take this out of context and make it that we can't call each other to live according to the standards of Christ, we've missed out on so much of the New Testament. Because Paul will say, you know, no, you can't keep on, go on sinning. Uh, at the same time, he says, don't pass judgment. So we hold those in appropriate tension as well. Um, I, I do think that there might be a sense of judgment of being a corrective. Uh, I think there will also be um, a truly calling evil what is evil, though, as well. A, a truly condemning, wrongful, uh, unjust, oppressive things and calling them what it is. Um, and, it's, uh, and I don't think you meant this, but it can be, sometimes we can hear that as like, oh, it's going to be mostly a slap on the wrist. But I think I think that it's going to be a lot harder than a slap on the wrist for some when it's appropriately deserved. Right. I guess the, the judging actions versus condemning a human, mm-hmm. where we always hold out that hope that this, person's, this person can be redeemed and is loved by God, mm-hmm. and when we hear judgment, we often interpret that as writing that person mm-hmm. off. And so that's, it seems like that's kind of what Right, yeah. Is. Yeah, we can't condemn, but we can judge things as right and wrong. Uh, we can judge according to truth, and we can speak according to that to judge truth. Yeah. Um, okay, I've got about five minutes, so I can give it over to George. Um, so, uh, not putting stumbling blocks. Don't let what you eat uh, destroy someone else. Um, don't worry, there's not much in my chapter, so uh, so don't be don't be anxious. Um, so much of the place, the the um, well. The last thing I'll highlight in chapter 14 before we go to 15 is that it's not always easy to know how to navigate this. Uh, this weaker brother, stronger brother thing. It's not always easy to see uh, whose side to quote unquote give into. Um, I'm thinking of the very um, maybe relevant issue of women in leadership. Um, and both sides can say uh, something about it feels like this is hurting my faith regardless of where you fall on it. And so this is not an easy thing for our elders. Uh, for our, our body to navigate, as one group is saying, it's really hard for me uh, when the church seems to go against what I perceive to be clear teachings of Scripture. And the other group saying, it's really hard for me uh, to understand how God can love me as a female and value me as a female when he is putting me in a place that makes me seem inferior. Uh, so I'm not trying to fix that or open up a conversation about that. I only want you to realize uh, that it's not always obvious who's the weaker brother or how we are to practice love in a situation like this. It is difficult, uh, and so uh, maybe Paul's um, advice in 14.19, let's make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification, uh, captures this kind of hard work of it. All right, now my section that I will um, will cover uh, pretty quickly. Um, verse, we'll pick up in verse 16 of chapter 15. He talks about the grace God has given him to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. He gave me the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So even more of that, that that Hilton had brought up, that priestly um, idea of of Paul's calling and then us as sacrifices and even sometimes co-priests. Verse 17, I glory in Christ Jesus in my service to God. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me and leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done. Paul points to Christ's actions in him. Um, here's another place that Paul doesn't parse or fully fix attention. We're called to do certain things, but he talks about all that Christ does in him. When is it me? When is it Christ? I don't know. He doesn't fix that. Uh, so there's no place for pride. Um, but there's also then no need to always like 
poo-poo whatever you've done. There can be a place to really appreciate that God has been working in you, not in a kind of humble brag way like, oh man, God has done some really awesome stuff in me. Let me tell you about all the uh, people I baptized or whatever it might be. Uh, but rather there's a place to be like, man, God has, has actually worked through me. I just felt like I got used by God to speak truth into this person's life or to be there when they were suffering. And, and what a joy to be his minister in that moment. Uh, that is totally okay. You don't have to downplay uh, all of that, um, as we are sometimes prone to do. Uh, the end of chapter 15, Paul talks about his plans to go to Spain, which at that point would have seen, this is like verse 24, uh, maybe like the western limits of the world uh, in Paul's day, which seems strange to us, but that was his mission to get out there. Uh, we have language of service running throughout that, this section. And um, if we go to verse 26, for Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the Lord's people in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share with them in their material blessings. So in 26 and 27, you have the language of koinonia, uh, the verb and the noun form. So koinonia and koinoneo, I guess is what that comes out to. Koinonoo, okay, uh, koinooo, uh, that's a fun one. Thanks, but anyway, thanks for clearing it up. yes. Well, we like koinonia language, or at least that was kind of trendy for a while. You know, we all like koinonia, yeah, and we talk about it as like fellowship or community. Um, but notice here that koinonia is about giving to those who are struggling. Uh, it, it's got this really kind of sacrificial monetary sense to it, which is not the only way koinonia gets used. Um, but as we hear this kind of trendy word, and uh, we got to hear it as the kind of depth it is. Paul views people, Christians, across cultures and across nations as in koinonia, as in fellowship, and in a kind of family fellowship. The kind of family fellowship where you know if your brother or sister is struggling and it's not their fault, you dig into your pockets and you give them even sometimes when it hurts. That's the kind of uh, boundary-breaking uh, love that's happening here. And this is bizarre as you've got Jews and Gentiles, as he's talking about, uh, doing this very thing. In fact, it's so difficult as he's uh, trying to, to bring these two groups together. You get at the end, or in verse 31, uh, as he prays to be kept safe, uh, he also prays that this gift might be favorably received. You know that there's tension when people are poor and struggling and they're maybe not going to accept a gift because they're coming, it's, the gift is coming from those people, right? We're Jews. Are we going to really accept something from those unclean Gentiles, those uncircumcised? And Paul is saying, pray that they, keep, pray that they accept it. And, and part of accepting a gift in the first century society is you're entering into a relationship there in ways we don't necessarily uh, pick up as much today. So he's wanting to bring these groups together, uh, and appropriately so. The Jews, uh, their Messiah, their good news is now reaching the Gentiles, and now, hopefully, that's going to come back as the Gentiles uh, take care of the struggling Jews. All right, George, 16. One, um, one little note on the trip to Spain is um, we don't know that Paul ever really made it to Spain. Uh, he may have, he may not have, we don't know for sure. And, but the reason that we have Romans is because he was planning on going to Spain, so he had never been to Rome, so he wrote the book of Romans. So sometimes God works through, I mean, you have a dream, but 
what prepares you to do the dream is what God works through. So I think that's interesting that we have the book of Romans because Paul had this dream that may never come true, but uh, we have Romans because he was working for the dream. So, Okay, chapter 16 is a lot of uh, greetings that, that Paul is making to people in the church at Rome. It looks like there are some people there that he knew from his mission, mission trips before that are now at the church in Rome. And there's one of the things that uh, I want to point out um, that emphasize the role of women in Paul's ministry. There's a few things that come through here. And we typically think about uh, Paul's view of women from 1 Timothy chapter 2, where women are to be silent. I do not allow women to teach or have authority over a man. Uh, but we have to find a way to interpret those passages that also make sense of what Paul says about what women were actually doing in the church in his other letters. So uh, I think that makes this uh, in chapter of, of Romans uh, significant for that interpretation. So the first thing he says is, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Sincrea, is what my translation says, a deacon of the church. Does anybody have a different translation there? Servant. Servant. So this is where we get to the nitty-gritty of, do we translate this deacon or do we translate this servant? And the problem is the word diakonos can be translated servant and means that. But in some context, um, in 1 Timothy and Titus, there is this role within the church of a deacon. And some qualifications are given for that role. Uh, in 1 Timothy 2, it gives some qualifications for a deacon. And then it talks about, it uses the word gune, which is a word for women. And one of the problems with Greek is it didn't have a word, it doesn't have a word for wife. It just uses the word woman for wife. So uh, English is better in this case uh, than Greek because it leaves that, how do we translate that? So, so he, he has some qualifications for deacons and then he says women. And you can interpret that to be women deacons or wives of deacons. So what's he talking about there? And so it's, it's confusing. Uh, but then he goes on to say, about deacons that they are to be the man of one woman. And for some people, it's like, okay, well, man of one woman means a deacon has to be a man. Uh, and then it gets, we have to figure out what it means to be a man of one woman. Uh, the NIV translates that now. I just noticed the, the latest one as uh, faithful to his wife. So it's not about polygamy, not necessarily about divorce and remarriage, but being faithful to the wife that you have is how they are interpreting that at, at this point. So uh, is Phoebe a deacon? What does Paul mean when he says that Phoebe is a deacon of the church in Sincrea? Sincrea is a little um, harbor town next to Corinth where you would leave out of Corinth to go to Jerusalem, that direction. He says, I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from you for she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. So... Phoebe was apparently fairly wealthy. He used the word benefactor of many people, a benefactor of Paul, and he wants the Roman church to receive her in the Lord. And it looks like what he says about her means that she is going to Rome. So he wants her to be greeted when she comes to Rome. 
And this language in ancient letters is often used of the person who carries the letter. So I'm giving my letter to this person who's going to come. Maybe she was going to go to Rome on business anyway, so he says, take this letter to the Romans. Now, the thing in the ancient world is that whoever took the letter would also add other instructions or verbal. Their, their, their role was to, to read the letter to the people you were sending it to out loud is how they usually did it in the ancient world. Uh, Cicero has a line where he says, I received your letter, but I couldn't uh, read it until now because I had a sore throat. Um, which I, I'm like, oh, well, it's because they, they would always read out loud. I don't know why they did that, but they did that. Um, so Phoebe is taking the letter to, to Rome. And it, this, uh, this is not said explicitly in the text, but I'm just saying this could be based on the way this was done in the ancient world. She would be reading the letter out loud to the churches and explaining it. And maybe Paul would have said, hey, on this part, fill in this stuff and that type of thing. So Phoebe, a female, reading the letter <laughs> to the church and giving further explanation. Well, obviously she didn't do that on Sunday because we wouldn't allow that. <laughs> Maybe some other day of the week that would be okay. A Sunday school was class setting. Yeah. This definitely it wasn't. Maybe she taught the children the book of Romans. Yeah, definitely not the 11 o'clock hour. Maybe the 10 o'clock hour at Sunday school. Okay, so we got some other people, Priscilla and Aquila. Um, but I want to get to verse 7. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. So this verse has come up in modern interpretation um, because the, the name Junia is a female name. Now in Greek, uh, there's also a male name, uh, Junius is how it's usually transliterated. In Greek, they have the same exact form, but a different accent. So there's a w way you can accent the words that was developed at a later time. Our earliest manuscripts of the New Testament don't have accents. So there was some confusion among in the scribal tradition as to whether to accent this as a female name or a male name. Interestingly, a lot of our manuscripts, especially in the Middle Ages, always accented it as a male name. You wonder why? Because we can't have a female who is an apostle. So they just assumed it should be uh, a male name. But there's been a lot of research done lately and from what I've read, for example, in Rome itself, there are 250 occurrences of that name. Junia. Junia, the female version. Guess how many there are of the male name in Rome? Zero. So the likelihood is that this is uh, a female. And there's some, there's other difficulties, layers of the translation that um, you can also translate it. They were well known to the apostles instead of well known among the apostles. Um, but most translators now think that this translation is correct, that they were outstanding among the apostles. 
So can you have a female apostle? Right. What does it, what does it mean to be an apostle? So the the etymology of the word apostle, you, you see the post in there, apostle, that's where we get our word post office, where we send things. So an apostle is someone who is sent. That's the basic meaning of the word, someone who is sent. So it's sometimes used of missionaries or messengers that a church will send. So let's look at a few verses at for the yeah, sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's male, isn't it? Oh. And I think you could have men and women together in prison. Yeah. Yeah, and I think kins men is. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a more men in the generic sense of, yeah, kins person. Yeah. (laughs) But your translation says junius. Junius, but in the margin, in my margin is. Junia. Yeah. Yeah. So this is the controversy I guess you could say it's amazing how even in just a list of greetings you can get theology yeah known to the apostles yeah yeah when they do it male they're a lot more comfortable saying among the apostles (laughs) and then when it's female then it becomes well it must be to the apostles or apostle must not mean apostle right because it has the male one yeah Junius would be the male name. Non canonized? Not that I, uh, not that I know of. There is a Gospel of Mary, but I don't know if she would have written it or just kind of been about her. But yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think what he means by kin's person is they are fellow Jews, also have been faithful to their faith to the point of imprisonment with Paul. Yeah. So, yeah. Mine says the uh, estimation of the apostles. Yeah. That means they, they're taking it to these people aren't apostles, but they're well known to the apostles. Yeah. So that's a... That's a Hard to translate the Greek to know exactly what it means. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Yeah. 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 Good. Well, thanks for thanks for that. So did you hear what she said about, yeah. Yeah. Why did you ask about that, that question? Yeah. Yeah. Second uh, Corinthians 8.23 is, uh, as for Titus, he is my partner and co-worker among you. As for our brothers, they are representatives of the churches, apostles of the churches. Um, Philippians 
chapter 2, verse 25. Uh, this is, a, yeah, the use of the word apostle. I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. So the term apostle is one who is sent. Now, of course, there were 12 apostles who Jesus chose. I think he chose 12 because there are 12 tribes of Israel. And when one of those died, Judas, they replaced that one with the other. There's no evidence that after, that after the other apostles died, they were replaced. But it was important to have 12 um, at some point at the beginning. So I, I've heard preachers and there's commentators who say that this is... Um, that a woman apostle means, like even N.T. Wright says, um, one who has seen the risen Lord, which is one of the qualifications for an apostle in, in Acts, and we're on the same plane as all the other apostles, including Paul. Well, Mary, yeah, in, in, in the Gospels is one of the first ones to go tell the other, go tell the group that, Jesus had been raised. Well, th- this is where I think it gets, like, I've, I've heard even of church leaders um, who start calling themselves an apostle. And I think they do that to say, hey, I'm just a generic apostle, like we're all apostles in a sense, but, but they at the same time want to get some of that authority that the term apostle tends to connote because of the 12 apostles. So I think we have to be careful with what that word means. So is it a generic, just anybody who is sent on a certain mission, or does it have some authority? And uh, Josh and I were talking before class, and he says, well, does, does the term have any sense of leadership within it? And um, this is, I, don't, I suppose, I think so. Um, one who is sent on a certain mission has that role to play. So when we talk about uh, women keeping silent in 1 Timothy 2 and in 1 Corinthians, um, that c- there could be contextual reasons in those churches. Like in 1 Timothy 2, he's writing to Ephesus. There's some false teaching going on. And it, it could, he could be saying, because of that situation, it's important that women be silent and let them learn in full submission um, maybe with the idea, this is the way some people interpret it, that once they have been taught and learned, then they can go back to teaching again. But we have kind of read that as, an, you know, all times, all places, because women are easily deceived and all these things. I, I read a scientific study uh, a guy presented in a commentary. Guess which uh, gender is more easily deceived? <laughs> <laughs> According to scientific studies, however they do that, uh, it's not not women. <laughs> yes. Were Jewish women allowed to go to study in the synagogue like the men? Were they allowed to do that? Because my Christian Coptic Kurdish yeah. friend is telling me that Mary, he believes she was a perpetual virgin, and so I've been studying that. Yeah. I thought he was crazy. I could <laughs> see it. But he said she was studying in the t- 
temple before she was with Joseph. And I'm, and I'm thinking, no, mm. that can't be, but maybe it can be. Well, one of the things that you have to be very careful of is we know so little about what people did in the ancient world, especially the common people, because those that type of thing is not usually written down and described very much. Uh, so what, and then even if it was, does it did it survive so that we can find it and read about it? So it's really hard to know what women did in the ancient world because we don't have enough information. And it can also vary by whether you live in the country or whether you live in the city or whether educated or uneducated or there's lots of factors that you can't just say women in the ancient world did this and didn't do this because there could be some places where it would be different so it's hard hard to know um, yeah okay um, one uh, maybe this is the last thing verse 23 I have 24 in brackets because that was left out um, it's not in our latest or earliest manuscripts. But there is an Erastus, and I want Jim to tell the story about Erastus because um, Erastus, Paul is writing from Corinth, and he says, Erastus, the city's director of public works, sends you greetings. So uh, Jim and I were on a trip to uh, Greece with a study abroad group at Lipscomb. We went to Corinth, and what did we get to see? There was an area that was blocked out, but Jim and I intrepidly snuck through a hole in the fence <laughs> and were not shot. They, were, they weren't really guarding it. I just didn't want people walking down there. Yeah. <laughs> but there is a stone that is down on one of the walkways that was blocked off there that has the name Erastus carved into it. And I don't remember the rest of it, George, what else is on there. I think it says city treasurer or something like that. Something yeah. of that sort, which is a direct correlation. Yeah. Kind of, it really was kind of inspiring and moving for me to stand right there and see confirmation. Yeah. Not that I was questioning, but confirmation that this really was a guy who was there who did that. Yeah. Did you say it was a coin? Yeah. And they just had it out. I mean, they don't, it's not in a museum or anything. It's just out there and getting rained on and wearing away. Not, <laughs> yeah. not wearing easily, away. Easily visible. Yeah. George convinced me it was really big. <laughs> <laughs> I had them all fooled. This is the one place we could see. Yeah. All right. I think that's all we have. Thank you very much for being here this morning. Okay, right there the names What happens after Romans? Because somebody he said something about Galatians. We're going to study Galatians. Yeah. Okay, so is this through the Bible or is this topical no, stuff? No, this is just whoever wants to teach whatever book they decide to teach. Okay, good. Because yeah. I have been searching for years for a good Bible study, and this is the oh, best good. one I've come up with. Oh, good. So, yeah. And mine says city treasurer. Yeah, right. What translation are you using? This is the NIV. Oh, what I are you? What are you using? New American Standard. Yeah, that's good. And I went to I went to what is now Jessup University, but I didn't go to that. I went to the San Jose okay. Bible College before. Yeah.
they were connected. I mean, it was connected, but anyway. Um, and the New American Standard is what they said was the closest, if you can do it in English, and my Christian Coptic Kurdish convert. <laughs> Thanks. We sit and he reads, because we're doing a Facebook Live thing to mm -hmm. the Kurds. Oh, cool. He reads in English his Arabic Bible, and it always, yeah. it almost always matches the New American Standard. And he's re just reading it. Yeah. I mean, he's translating, translating it. Yeah. yeah. It's a very literal translation. So they're trying to kind of keep the Greek order yes, and things like which that. Which I so, need. I yeah. need that. Because yeah. it's too easy to go. Otherwise, and while I'm at home, <clears throat> I have my old variable speed tape recorder, yeah. and I'm listening to the Bible on cassette, and it said public works, and I'm thinking, yeah. okay, what does that mean? Yeah, and it was in, it's a treasure. I think it's pretty much the same thing. It may, it may be that treasures in the ancient world. Their job wasn't just to take care of the money, but it was to use the money to build the public fountains right. and things like that. So, right, 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 right. so that's why they they translate it differently. I yeah. think I think yeah, that's a fine translation. You just kind of want to read several translations when you when you're doing in depth well, is study. The, is the NIV really a translation, or yeah. is it a? Yeah, I think. I it's, mean, is it a direct translation, or is it? Yeah, they did it direct from the Greek as well. It's just they their goal is not to keep the same word order. As the Greek, they're they're say, let's take this thought in Greek, and how would we say that in English today? Whereas the new Ed the New American Standard said, let's just stay as close to the Greek as we can. Sometimes the English doesn't flow as well, or it just sounds more stilted. That English, it's just not. Does it come across in English because it means this? Yeah. So I love yeah. studying the Bible, except yeah. that the only commentary he will look at is the Coptic. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. And I, I have huge issues with yeah. that because of what I see going have, has gone on. Yeah, there. Him. I mean, I haven't been to the Coptic Church, but his. Yeah, they're the gonna. The things that he says, and it's so close to Catholicism, and. And he calls him father, and he does all this stuff, and I say, And the things that they have him do, and they make him do, but he goes to Christ Church is where he goes. He goes to where? Christ Church. Okay. You know, we have a lot of Coptic students at Lipscomb. Uh -huh. 